Well, it's wonderful to see everyone here this morning. We thank you for coming and being part of our services here at Faith Bible Church. Uh, as I was thinking about our groundbreaking here this morning, I ran across something a couple weeks ago, six phases of a building project. Phase one is enthusiasm. Phase two is disillusionment. Phase three is panic. Phase four, search for the guilty. Say, uh, phase five is punishment of the innocent. And phase six is praise and honor for the non-participants. <laughs> But I hope we stay in phase one the whole time of enthusiasm about what God is doing for us here. Um, William Carey, the great missionary, said, you know, we're to attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And uh, for our church, this is a great thing that we're attempting and we're expecting great things from God. And uh, we appreciate uh, so much in this church, those who've gone before us, we're standing on their shoulders and uh, they laid a wonderful foundation here, uh, that one foundation that can be laid that's Jesus Christ. And uh, we hope and we pray to build upon that. If you're visiting here with us this morning, we're especially glad you're here with us. We're in a study of the book of Nehemiah, which is uh, a book about building. Uh, we've, we've titled this series, Rebuilding Your Future. So if you'll take your Bible with me and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, we left off uh, last time in Nehemiah 3 uh, with the people of Judah hard at work there uh, on the walls of Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the city. And then Nehemiah chapter 3 tells us what happened, the building of the city. But Nehemiah chapters 4, 5, and 6 that we'll look at this morning here in the next couple of weeks tells us how it happened. And it happened in the face of opposition. It happened uh, in the face of, uh, of a lot of discouragement. And we're going to see over the next three weeks that it's often more difficult to sustain something than it is to start it. And I think we all probably recognize that in our, in our own lives. It's a lot more difficult often to sustain something than to start. It's often difficult to keep going. It's often very difficult in life to keep on in spite of opposition and discouragement. Let me read Nehemiah 4, 1 through 8. We'll look at the whole chapter, but I want to read these first eight verses to, to get the setting for us. Now, it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break down uh, their stone wall with it. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now it came about when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a great disturbance in it. Well, so reads God's inspired, inerrant word. Back in 1952, Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific off Catalina Island to swim to the shore of mainland California. She'd already uh, been the first woman to swim the English Channel. She'd gone across it both ways. Uh, the morning she was going to swim from Catalina Island to California was a foggy, chilly day. Uh, she could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her on the swim. 
And uh, 15 hours into the swim, she wanted to quit and, and to give up. Uh, she'd had all that she could take. She begged to be taken out of the water. But her mother, who was in a boat alongside, encouraged her that she was uh, close to the shore and that she could make it. Finally, just physically and emotionally drained, uh, she stopped swimming and gave up, and she was pulled out of the water. Uh, she gave up and finally gave out. It wasn't until uh, she was in the boat that she discovered that she was less than half a mile away from the shore. And you can just imagine her disappointment. I mean, 15 hours of swimming, and the goal is just a half a mile away. In fact, the next day at a news conference, here's what she said. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Now, all of us in life are, at some time or another, are in danger of losing our way in the fog of life. Every one of us in life have to deal with opposition and with discouragement. I mean, setbacks will come. They're inevitable in life, and those of us who've lived long enough uh, know that full well. And oftentimes in life, we're tempted to give up. Many people are tempted to give up on a marriage. Uh, they're tempted to, to give up on their work or their vocation or maybe some dream that God has given them. Or maybe they're tempted to give up on a ministry that God um, has called them to. Life can be difficult and discouraging, and we can be tempted to give up. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, we, we meet the people of Judah here facing a, a daunting dose of discouragement. Uh, they're tempted to throw in the towel. But Nehemiah, who's their governor and their leader, renders some spiritual CPR here to the people uh, of Judah. And it may be that you need some spiritual CPR here this morning. Maybe uh, you're discouraged because of financial issues or things with your family, or maybe with your health. Maybe it's opposition and you have fear. It seems to be at your heels, and you just are discouraged this morning. You're really thinking about throwing in the towel in some area of life. The message of our passage here this morning is a very simple message, and it's the message to keep on. Whatever you're facing in life, to keep on, to keep going. Now, I want to look at two simple points to break down this chapter, and each of these points have three subpoints. you can see in your outline. I want to look at three reasons for their discouragement and then three resources for encouragement. So kind of the bad news first, if you will, why they were discouraged, and then I want to look at why uh, they were encouraged and, and draw lessons from this for our lives. The first thing we see here in the reasons for discouragement is a group of people were taunting and ridiculing the Jewish people, the people of Judah, for rebuilding the wall. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. Now Sanballat, we met him back in chapter 2 verse 10, Sanballat's the governor of Syria, which is north of Judah. And he had a, a, an interest, probably a lot of financial interest and political interest in Jerusalem not becoming a wealthy and a prosperous city. So opposition rears its ugly head here again. And one of the lessons we learn here that's a very simple lesson is conflict is inevitable if we follow the will of God. You know, some people think, well, if I'm in the will of God, I'm not going to have any problems. Now, when you follow the will of God, it's inevitable there will be conflict because God's work and God's will never goes unopposed by the enemy. I mean, I think it's clear that Satan is behind this opposition that's here because he's the ultimate adversary of God's people. And anytime heaven advances, hell opposes what God is doing. And the city of Jerusalem here is at the very center of God's purposes on earth 
through the, the people of Israel and through uh, uh, the, uh, the land there and the city to, to uh, bring about God's purposes. Jerusalem's the focal point of God's work on the earth at this time. And clearly Satan doesn't want this city to be rebuilt and to be reestablished. And so what happens here is Satan uses Sanballat and these other men, these opponents, to unleash a verbal onslaught against the Jewish people. So the first strategy here of the enemy is ridicule or scorn, or we could kind of call it psychological warfare. Now, the source of this scorn was anger. A lot of times when people get angry about something, they ridicule it and they mock it. You'll notice in verse 1, since they heard about their rebuilding the walls, they became fury, furious and very angry, and they mocked the Jews. Same thing we see in chapter 2, verse 19. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, Geshem the Arab, they heard this, they mocked us, and they despised us. Now, ridicule is a very powerful weapon. When people are are berated and belittled and mocked and scorned, it's kind of a form of intimidation. It can instill fear in people. Um, It can destroy morale. It can uh, instill uh, and raise doubts in people's minds. When someone begins to ridicule or mock what you're doing or what you believe, you you, you kind of begin to maybe have self-doubt and wonder, well, maybe I am a fool for believing this, or maybe I am a fool for doing this. And it causes you to begin to second-guess yourself. One of the things about ridicule that's interesting is it requires little effort to mock people, right? And you don't even really have to have facts, or you don't have to have the facts right. You can just taunt and mock and heap scorn on people. And that's what Sanballat does here. Notice his five statements in verse 2. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? In other words, what a poor, incompetent group of people they really are. And you know, when he said that, they probably looked at themselves and thought, well, that kind of is right. We kind of we are a poor and covenant group. And then he says, will they restore the wall? In other words, this task is beyond their ability. Then he says this, will they sacrifice? Now you say, why did he say that? Probably what he's saying, will they sacrifice? In other words, do the Jews think just by sacrificing and praying, they're going to get this wall built? I mean, if they, do they think just going through a few devotional exercises is going to put this wall up? Do they really realize how much work it's going to be? He says, will they finish up in a day? In other words, do they have any idea how long this is going to really take? And then he says, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? He said, look, these stones you're, you're using to rebuild were, were burned and When limestone gets burned, obviously it's weak and crumbles. You don't even have the stones you need. Now, obviously, we're going to realize they had plenty of rocks and stones because they're going to build this wall in 52 days. But he's just simply scorning and mocking them to try to discourage them. And we see the same tactic being unleashed against the people of God in our culture today. And I know you all sense this, but more and more as Christians in our culture, we see ourselves living behind enemy lines. Satan does not want the Lord Jesus Christ to build his church. So one of the things he does uh, to to prevent that is to mock the people of God and to to heap scorn upon us. Uh, Let's face it, nobody likes to be laughed at or to be made fun of. And this is one of Satan's age-long tactics. Everywhere we turn, though, today, believers are being berated and belittled. I mean, we see it everywhere. 
I, mean, I could give a lot of examples, but one well-known one on ABC's program, uh, The View. Remember one of the ladies there took a shot at Mike Pence who said he prayed to Jesus and he, he talked to him and she called that a mental illness. Um, and CBS has a sitcom right now called Living Biblically which is basically just a, a mockery of Christianity. It's confirming kind of a rigid stereotype of what it means to be a Christian. Um, any famous person who takes a stand for biblical truth and biblical morality is going to be mocked and ridiculed. I mean, you think about what happens in classrooms and colleges and universities every day across this country as faith in the Lord and the Bible and the morality that Christians believe is mocked and scorned. I mean, it's cool nowadays to mock Christianity and Christians. It's open season. In fact, someone said this recently, mocking Christianity is the latest American sport. Everywhere one looks, there are articles espousing the evils of faith, laughing at the irrationality of belief, and belittling Christian thought. We see it all around us today. And maybe it's happened to you. Maybe you've been laughed at or mocked for your faith in the Lord. Maybe it's come from a friend. Uh, maybe it's uh, come for some, from some of you to, from a school teacher, a college professor, uh, maybe a relative that you know. And just kind of the insinuation is just kind of how stupid you are to really believe in these kinds of things. You know, that this way of thinking is out of date. Or, you know, do, do you really believe that stuff? Or you're kind of a narrow-minded bigot for believing in the Bible and the truth of Scripture. Look, the culture is not going to agree with us, and I'll just say this to the people who are, who are younger. As you're growing up in this culture, you're going to face uh, an onslaught and a barrage of belittling and berating what you believe if you stand for Scripture. But let me just say this to encourage you. Opposition should be encouraging because it means you're on the right track. Again, we often think, well, you know, if I'm on the right track, everything's going to go smoothly. But no, opposition should be encouraging. I mean, Jesus was mocked and scorned more than any person that's ever lived. Now, again, we don't want to go out and try to do things to get people to mock us and ridicule us. But if we really follow the Bible and follow biblical Christianity, this world is not going to love us and is going to mock us. In fact, Jesus said, the world will hate you, and in this world you'll have tribulation. So we need to prepare for that as we see this in our culture and be ready for it. Now, notice in verse 3, Tobiah joins the taunting. Tobiah the Ammonite. He's probably a Jewish person. His name's a Jewish name, but he's the Ammonite. He probably rules over Ammon, which is the area of modern-day Jordan to the east of Jerusalem or the east of Israel. And he was near, and notice what he says. He says, even what you're building, if a fox should jump on it, he'd break their stone wall down. Now, you talk about mockery. I mean, a, a fox is a light, you know, nimble little animal. He says, what you guys are building is so feeble and worthless. If a fox just jumps on it, he's going to knock it down. Now, that's really a foolish argument he makes because we have archaeological excavations of Nehemiah's wall. The wall was nine feet thick, and they built half of it by this time. So, I mean, that's, actually, he's the one who's foolish, right? You know, if a, if a fox jumps on the wall, is it going to fall over? I mean, the thing's nine feet thick and probably certainly several feet high by this period of time. But, but look, when people ridic ridicule Christians, it's the same way. They often use false information. I mean, the information doesn't have to be correct. It's just exaggeration, false information that's just used to mock and ridicule what we believe. Now, I love this. We'll, we'll skip verse 4 and 5 for now. We'll come back to that in a moment. 
but, but this mocking doesn't work. Plan A in opposition doesn't work because look at verse 6. So we built the wall and the wall was joined together. The work continues. And of course, this does nothing but anger the enemy, and so their plans escalate. They begin with words, and now they're going to escalate to violence. By the way, let me just say this. In our culture today, with all the berating and the mocking and the scorning of Christianity, that's always the first step. But that first step, ultimately, when it doesn't succeed, leads ultimately to violence. We've seen that in other parts of the world. We see it happening today in many places in the world. And, and I fear that it could come uh, to our country here as well. That's the way the enemy works, starting with ridicule and mocking and berating and then moving to threat of violence. That's what we see here. Notice in verse 7, Now it came about when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard this. They were angry in verse 8. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So they want to uh, paralyze the people with fear. And you have here an unholy alliance. Sanballat is governor of Samaria, which is north of Judah. Tobiah is the head of the Ammonites, which are the east of, of, of Judah. Uh, the Arabs were to the south, and the Ashdodites, that's the, modern, the ancient area of Philistia, modern Gaza, that's to the west of Judah. So basically, these enemies have the, the nation of Judah uh, surrounded and they have a threat here of terrorist attacks. We're going to come against you while you're working on the wall and fight against you to stop you uh, from, from fulfilling this purpose. Now, I couldn't help but notice this week as I was reading this passage, here we're talking, we're reading in 444 B.C., and it's all about the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls. What was in the news this last week all over the world? Jerusalem. I mean, think about that. 2,400 years have gone by, and still the focus of the world um, is on Jerusalem. We had the 70th anniversary of uh, the, the founding of the modern state of Israel this last week, uh, the, the moving of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And what's interesting to me is Satan wanted to keep Jerusalem from being built back in 444 B.C., and 2,400 years later today, he's doing the same thing. He's still against the city of Jerusalem because Satan wants to keep Jerusalem from being recognized as the capital of the Jewish state because he knows the purposes God has for the city of Jerusalem in the end times. So Satan's the ultimate anti-Semite. Um, he's anti-Jerusalem. He's anti-the uh, people of God. And the similarities with what we see today are striking. In fact, Ray Stedman wrote this some years ago in a commentary. He said, it's fascinating to keep Nehemiah 4 open as we watch the daily news from the Middle East. It's amazing that after all these centuries, so little has changed in that region of the world. The enemies of Israel in those days are still Israel's enemies today. Sanballat was governor of Samaria, which is the region of Palestine we now call the West Bank. Tobiah was the representative of a country known as, the, as Ammon that's now called Jordan. Later in verse 7, we read about the opposition of the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod. Where is Ashdod today? It's the Gaza Strip, a small and troubled Palestinian territory that borders Egypt, Israel, and the Mediterranean Sea. It's a densely populated land predominantly made up of Sunni Muslims with Hamas and other militant groups continually engaged in hostilities against Israel. In the Middle East, what's old is always new again. That's fascinating, isn't it? See, same places 
Here, the Jewish people are there today, surrounded and encircled by enemies, constantly mocking them with constant threats of uh, firing rockets in there and threats of terrorism. So it's the same thing. It's Satan's same tactics again. But what happens is these enemies of the people in Nehemiah's day were spreading rumors of an impending attack to dishearten and demoralize the people. And you imagine you're out there working on the walls and you're afraid that any moment the enemy's going to come upon you and attack you, it's going to affect your work. I mean, you're going to be demoralized and disheartened. They're trying to, to plant in the people's minds this idea, they're coming for us. You know, they're going to get us. And so they're seized with a sense of insecurity and living in fear. And down in verse 12, we see here that some Jewish people actually get in on this uh, 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 tactic here of discouraging God's people. Notice verse 12, it came about when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So some of the Jewish people who lived out in the surrounding areas kept coming to Nehemiah and the people and telling them, they're going to attack you and come upon you. And I love this, Nehemiah said, they told us ten times. I don't know if it was exactly 10 times. He may be exaggerating, but the idea here is kind of like we say, you know, I told you 10 times. But the picture here is the people of God are discouraging the people of God. I mean, bad news travels fast, doesn't it? Now, these people here are the pessimists really among the group, if you will, who keep coming and telling God's people, look, they're coming to get us. I like what Claire Murray said some years ago. She said, the problem with being a leader is you're never sure if you're being followed or chased. And I like that. You're a leader. You're not really sure if people sometimes are following you or chasing you. That's the way Nehemiah is here. Ten times over and over, they wouldn't stop. They just kept spreading this bad news. We don't have a chance. So all they see here are the troubles. And the intimidation takes its toll, and the people are gripped with fear. Look down in verse 14. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, said, do not be afraid of them. Uh, There's an old quote I read years ago that fear loves a good stampede. And so there's a stampede of fear that's overtaking the people, and it's leading them to be discouraged. So the first thing here that's causing their discouragement is this taunting. And you could really say it's the feebleness of the Jewish people. They're feeble. They're weak. I mean, you know, they're not mighty in number. They're not strong. The second thing is threatening or fear. And the third cause of their discouragement is they're tired and they're fatigued. Think about this. There's piles of rubble everywhere. I mean, the, the, the city of Jerusalem, for a hundred years, the people have been back in the land, and the temple has actually been destroyed for about 140 years. Or, I mean, the, uh, the city's been destroyed for 140 years. There are all kinds of rubble everywhere. And you think about rubble removal gets old really quickly. It's going to keep picking up rubble and picking up these stones and moving them around. The city of Jerusalem at this time is just one big construction site. And building sites are pretty ugly, aren't they? Now, no offense to Tim Scott and the guys. I, mean, I know they're going to keep this looking as nice as they can out there, right? But, I mean, building sites are not exactly attractive. It's just kind of a daily grind in the midst of all that mess. And the people are overwhelmed with fatigue. And exhaustion makes us vulnerable to discouragement. Look at verse 10. Thus in Judah it was said, these are the, the, the Jewish people, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. 
yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. They're buying into the propaganda of the enemy. They're agreeing with the enemy. This is a bigger job than we thought. The task seems too big for us. And notice back up in verse 6, there's an interesting note. He says, we built the wall to half its height. So half the wall is built. Now we're going to find out in chapter 6, it takes them 52 days, which is incredible, to build this wall. So all it takes is 52 days. So they're about halfway through here. So they're about a month into this. And the people are running out of steam and running out of gas. And when you think about it, in any endeavor in life, half time is a vulnerable time, isn't it? I mean, the, the initial enthusiasm is kind of worn off. Uh, often the, the, the second half of a job is much more difficult than the first half. The motivation kind of begins to wane. Uh, people, in fact, have a term for this. They call it half-time syndrome. When the early enthusiasm has gone and you can't see the finish line. I mean, it's true of running a distance race. Now, I've never been a distance runner, but I can imagine if I did run one about halfway through, I'd be thinking, what in the world am I doing? Uh, climbing a mountain, halfway through a, a difficult semester at school where you're just slogging your way through it. Often halfway through a marriage, people begin to, to lose steam and become discouraged. Uh, what do they call the middle of life? A midlife crisis, right? Kind of get to the midpoint in life and life maybe has kind of lost some of its enthusiasm and people begin to get discouraged in life. The fog can kind of begin to set in. Probably the, the most difficult thing at halftime is a renovation project at your house. If any of you have ever done that, at the halfway point, the mess looks a lot bigger than the goal, right? And excitement kind of gives way to exasperation and you lose perspective. And fatigue can then bring fear and life wears you down and a flood of, of negative emotions uh, begin to come in. And so it may be for some of you here this morning that you're close to throwing in the towel in some endeavor of your life. Emotional, spiritual, physical exhaustion just kind of combined to cause you to want to give up. Well, that's the bad news here this morning. Those are the reasons for the discouragement. But I want to give you the resources for encouragement, the good news, what you and I need to turn to in difficult times to be encouraged. The first thing is to remember to pray. The first impulse of Nehemiah with all this opposition and discouragement is to turn to God and pray. Look at verse 4. After all this ridicule, he says, Hear our God how we are despised. Return their reproach on their heads. Give them up in a land of plunder. Do not forgive their iniquity. Let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. The first thing Nehemiah does is turn to the Lord in prayer. And I'm struck here by the naturalness of his prayer. I mean, the natural thing for Nehemiah to do is to turn to the Lord in prayer. Rather than replying to Sanballat and Tobiah and speaking to them, what does Nehemiah do? He talks to God. He doesn't retaliate against their ridicule. He prays. He says nothing to the mockers, but he prays to his master. Now, when I just read this prayer, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't really sound like a prayer of Jesus. You'll love your enemies and so on. This prayer sounds kind of sub-Christian. Seems at odds with the teaching of Jesus to love our enemies. So how do we square Nehemiah's prayer with the teachings of Jesus about asking God to judge the enemies? 
Well, a couple things about this prayer. Notice this is not personal vengeance or vindictiveness on Nehemiah's part. Nehemiah is praying in his official capacity as the leader of the Jewish people. So it's not a personal matter with him. He's the leader of these people, and he's zealous for God and for God's work. And he places the vengeance in God's hands, not his own hands. So this is not the prayer of an individual who's been insulted, but he's praying here as the governor of Judah, as the leader of God's people. Here's a quote by a guy named James Hamilton. I think kind of summarizes this well, and then we'll move on. But he says, There's nothing wrong with praying for God to uphold justice against those who oppose his people. Nor nor is this in conflict with Jesus' instruction, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It is not loving to want someone to continue in their evil and avoid God's justice. It is loving to desire that God would deliver someone from his or her evil by means of the revelation of his justice against them. Then he says this, Nehemiah's imprecatory prayer. Now, that word imprecatory means to call down God's judgment. There's a lot of psalms, if you read the psalms, that are imprecatory, where David and others as the king would call on God to judge their enemies. But he says, Nehemiah's imprecatory prayer calls for God's justice against Sanballat and Tobiah's wicked opposition to the good purposes of God. God's justice against them may result in their salvation, but if they continue in unrepentant sin, God's justice will result in their damnation. Nehemiah prays they would not continue unpunished in their unrepentant sin. That's what Nehemiah is praying here. He's saying, God, these men are opposed to you. They're opposed to your program. Show them your justice. And in showing them your justice, they may turn to you, but if they don't turn to you, then they'll be judged. So I think it's consistent with how we can still uh, pray today. Now, he asked God to deal with him, though. That's the point here. Notice down in verse 9, all the people joined Nehemiah in praying. But we prayed to our God. Twelve times in this book, we're going to see Nehemiah praying. It's the first thing he does. When opposition comes, when discouragement comes, um, he turns to the Lord. And I love in verse 9 when he says, we prayed to our God. Notice it's personal. They know this God. He's their God. And I just want to pause here for a moment and say this. If you're here this morning and you don't know God and you can't say that God is my God, that I know Him personally, then you need to trust in Jesus as your Savior because the Bible says Jesus is the mediator, the go-between between God and us. He's God and man who came and died on our play, in our place on the cross, rose again from the dead, and it's through trust in Him that we can have a relationship with the true and the living God. So if you've never believed in Jesus, that's what you need to do this morning. Uh, the Apostle Peter said it like this in the book of Acts. He says, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So if you don't have Jesus as your Savior and you can't say God is my God, I want to encourage you this morning to take Jesus Christ to be your Savior and believe in Him. But look, when you're downcast and discouraged, remember to pray. The second thing is, have resolve. I love this. Discouragement and opposition must be met with conviction. When the scorn and the ridicule and the derision come, what does Nehemiah do in verse 6? So we built the wall. They stayed on task. They continued working. In other words, it's good to pray, and that should be the first thing we do, but our prayer is not passive. I like what one person said about Nehemiah. He put feet to his prayers. 
He prayed, but then he had the resolve to continue and to keep on doing what God had called him to do. He used supernatural and natural resources. He prayed to God, but someone says it like this. He committed the problem to the Lord and then asked his assistant to hand him another brick. So he's there praying, but he's working. And for Nehemiah, reliance on the Lord is not incompatible with precautionary measures and with work. He prayed to God. We're going to see he puts a guard up to guard the city. So there's no inconsistency between faith and planning and hard work. And Nehemiah is a great model for us of prayer and preparedness, of prayer and precaution. I mean, it's a beautiful balance and a blending in his life. God works, and we trust in him, but we also work. And so the Jewish people at this time have no army, and so all the workers are armed by Nehemiah to defend the city against a possible attack. It's kind of like uh, Oliver Cromwell, the Battle of Edge Hill back in 1642. It's the first battle of the English Civil War. He told his roundhead troops, put your trust in God, but keep your powder dry. That's a famous old saying, right? There's a World War II version of that. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. But we trust in the Lord, but at the same time, we take practical steps led and empowered by him uh, to carry out his work. So in verse 13, he, he groups the people according to families. It would strengthen them to fight for their families. I, I love that at the end of, uh, he says in verse 13, I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. The end of verse 14, God is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your houses. You know, sometimes in ancient warfare, especially uh, I understand among uh, the Scotch-Irish, when they would go out to fight a battle to defend their city, they would line up all their wives and their children behind them before they'd go out to fight. You talk about motivation to fight. You know if you lose what's going to happen to your family. And I love this. Nehemiah tells the people here, you go out and you fight for your families. And by the way, let me just say this. Uh, one of the great fights in our generation is the fight for our families. And I pray that you're engaged in that. We, we remember the Lord. We have to go out and fight uh, for our families in this time in which we live. Nehemiah here draws their attention away, though, from the, the overwhelming opposition they face to the omnipotence of God. Look at verse 14. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He calls on the people to stand their ground in the power of the Lord. And he really turns Jerusalem into an armed camp. I love this. He mobilizes the people to make sure the most vulnerable parts of the wall are protected. He puts the city on red alert. He sets up a temporary warning system. He has a, a man with a trumpet right next to him. And he says, when that trumpet sounds, everyone rally to your posts to defend the city. He doubles the night watch. Nehemiah is a man of resolve. He's going to stay on task with what God has called him to do in spite of the opposition and the discouragement. The final resource I see there for discouragement, though, is to rally. Notice verse 14, when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. So he rallies all the people together to instill confidence in them. And then notice uh, down in uh, verse 19, it says, And I said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive. We are separated on the wall far from one another. 
Whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there and our God will fight for us. Nehemiah calls the people together for strength and encouragement. And I love this because as we go out into the world, each of us every week, and we face opposition and we face discouragement in this culture, you and I come together and rally every Sunday morning together to be encouraged. Sunday morning should be a rallying point for us as the people of God. Here in our services together, um, in our ABFs as we gather with our adult Bible fellowships, as our, our young people gather together, we rally together to encourage and to strengthen one another and to be strengthened and encouraged ourselves. Nehemiah gathers the people and he says, Remember the Lord great and awesome. Our God uh, will fight for us. It's the greatness and the glory of God. And you know, every church has its, its problems and difficulties. There's no perfect church, and certainly that's true here at Faith Bible Church, and I've been here long enough to know that, and I certainly know that about myself as a pastor. But I will say this, and I hope it's true, that every Sunday as we come here and rally together as people at this church, that people will hear that God is awesome and God is great and that God will fight for us. If we don't get anything else from being here, I hope that message will come through every week loud and clear. And we can come here to rally as God's people, to be encouraged, to go back out and uh, to fight for our families and to be encouraged in in an increasingly dark world that we live in. We rally to be reminded of the greatness of our God. And that overshadows our fears, that that God takes care of our enemies. And, And we see that God is the point of reference of life. We see everything else in light of Him. God is the one who defines reality for us as His people. So Nehemiah here is rallying the troops. He's filling their hearts and their minds with sound theology about who God is. And I love this. Sambite and Tobalit, uh, 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 Sanballat and Tobiah had said, you won't. The people of Judah had said, we can't. But Nehemiah gathers the people together and says, God will. And that's what leaders do. And they go on and they use every hour of daylight to sleep to, to sleep and to work and, and all this. You read in verses 21 to 23. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so he may be a guard for us by day and a laborer by, uh, a, a guard by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes, each took his weapon even to the water. Now that may mean that they didn't remove their clothes until they went down to the water to take a bath, which I'm sure everybody was glad they did that at some point. But they stayed armed the whole time. What we see here is through the leadership of Nehemiah, the people get a second wind. They get a second wind to go out and to finish the project that God had called them to. And maybe you need a second wind in your life here this morning and something that you're facing that's daunting. Look, there's a lot out there in our culture today to discourage us as believers. There's a lot of ridicule and berating of what we believe. There's a lot of fear in our culture today. And there's just a lot of fatigue. I mean, we live in an increasingly fast-paced world that can just kind of wear us down over time. So what do I do in the midst of this? You remember, you pray. The first thing you do is go to the Lord. He is our resource. He is great and He's awesome. And then we 
pray, we ask God to help us, and then we stay on task and we resolve to continue to do the things that God has called us to do. And then periodically, each week, week after week, month after month, year after year, we come and we rally together so we can be encouraged and strengthened and so we can encourage and strengthen one another. If we'll do that, God will keep us going until the Lord Jesus comes again. There's a story I told this a few months ago, but I want to tell it again. It fits well here, and I like this story. It's about Eric Alexander, Dr. Eric Alexander. He was uh, the pastor for many years at the Tron Church in Glasgow, Scotland. He's actually spoken here at our church a few times. And he got an opportunity as a young man, young theological student, to go hear the great preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher. And uh, he was just enamored with listening to him and hearing everything he said. And a couple thousand people packed the place to hear him. And so even after the service, he said he went out where Lloyd-Jones couldn't see anybody. He watched how he dealt with people. He wanted to learn everything he could from this godly man. And he noticed that every person, when, when Martin Lloyd-Jones, every person that came and talked to him and shook his hand, when they got finished talking, he'd, he'd shake their hand and look him in the eyes and say, keep on. And another person would come and talk to him, and he'd, he'd talk to them, and he'd take them by their hand, look them in the eyes, and say, keep on. So as God's providence had it that night, Dr. Alexander and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones rode back to their place. They were staying in the same car. Someone took them back there. And um, Eric Alexander said, he asked Lloyd-Jones about that. He said, you know, I noticed that every person you talked to, the last words you spoke with them were words, keep on. He said, it seemed like those words were important to you. And he said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who was an older man at the time, got immediately animated. And he said, my dear man, there's nothing more important. We must keep on. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And I like that there's nothing more important in your life and in my life for us to keep on. So my encouragement to you this morning is in your marriage to keep on, in your family to keep on. I mean, your work that God's called you to, to keep on in that. And for us all as a church together in this mighty endeavor that God's called us to, uh, for us to keep on and to be faithful. And then just as individuals in our lives, to keep on with what God has called us to do. By God's grace, by His mercy, if we'll pray, if we'll have the resolve to keep going, if we'll rally together often to be with God's people, God can give us the strength to keep on in a world that's becoming more and more discouraging and more and more opposing to us. We need each other. May God help us to avail ourselves of these resources. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now this morning. We pray if there's anyone here this morning who can't say about you that, that, you're, that you're their God, you're, you're my God, that they'd turn to Jesus this morning and believe in him and trust in him. And Father, for those of us who know you, I pray, Father, that as the discouragements of life, as the buffeting of life comes, as we feel like sometime we might be losing our way in the fog of life, well, God, that we'll turn to you in prayer. We'll always remember that you're there, that you're an awesome God, that you fight for us, that you're great in might and in power. And, Father, that you'll give us the endurance by your Spirit to just keep on, to stay on task with what you've called us to do, even when we become weary. And, oh, Father, bring us here often to rally together and help us to be a great encouragement to one another. And Father, I pray as we come here every week that above everything else we would leave here believing that the God we serve is a great and an awesome God who will fight for us. Father, help us to keep on. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, if you'll stand with me for our, our benediction as we're dismissed. Again, if you're a visitor, thank you for being with us this morning. It's an important day in our church as we've had this groundbreaking. So we're going to be able to begin to see a lot of things happening out there. It's exciting. Uh, just continue to pray, if you will, for Bruce and for Tim Scott and for all those who are uh, uh, helping with this. We, we appreciate that. And I uh, pray for, for Jay as he helps with our staff in leading this. Um, if you are a guest or a visitor, thank you for being here with us. Go out these doors right to your left. There's a welcome center. Some folks there who'd love to greet you. Also, in each of, after each of our services, uh, Anna and Nick Yelvington, uh, Anna grew up here in our church. They're back from India with Stumo. And I know some of you here help support them, and others of you may want to uh, begin, begin to uh, be part of their support team. So they're going to be out in the, this lobby after this service. So just go by and greet them and say hello to them. They're back here with us on furlough. Let's uh, commit ourselves to the Lord now as we leave here. Father, we come before you now and we pray, Father, that you'd energize us by your Holy Spirit uh, to keep on. Lord, I pray if uh, anyone here today is discouraged in their marriage with their family, um, with their work that they have, Father, for those of us here that labor at this church, uh, Father, help us to keep on in what we do. Uh, we leave here, Lord, we're encouraged, we're excited. Uh, we know that you've given us the power to do what we can do. And we know, oh God, that you're the one who will fight for us. God, go with us now as we leave here, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Bones.
Pour out our praise to you. 